Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Growing Our Identities as Buddhist Heroes by Lama Tom Broadwater. The effects, actions, and attitude of a bodhisattva are eternal because they implant the seed that enables us to actually benefit others and experience enlightenment. For this reason, Kempo Karta Rinpoche loved giving the bodhisattva vow and would often weep when describing the benefits of the vow. In this talk, we will explore what it means to commit ourselves to such a path. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Teksum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. So good afternoon. First of all, I want to thank everyone who uh, stopped by to hear the Sunday afternoon Columbus KTC Dharma Talk. I'm Tom Broadwater, and I will be giving today's talk. I appreciate your being here. And I hope whether you are a brand new student to Dharma or a veteran practitioner, that this will be some benefit to you in your daily life. We begin uh, this talk by establishing our direction and our motivation for our efforts. As Buddhists, we begin by taking refuge in the Buddha. Now, refuge in the Buddha does not mean that we supplicate some other person for help. It means we are recollecting the qualities of Buddhahood, the true nature of our mind, and thereby we strengthen our resolve to accomplish that state for ourselves. Then taking refuge uh, in the Buddha, we also take refuge in the Dharma which means we are determined to actually apply the means to enable us to achieve Buddhahood. Finally, we take refuge in the Sangha, the community of practitioners. And that means we seek out spiritual friends who can help us along on this journey. And we are also ready to assist those who might travel this journey. So this is our starting point. Next, we affirm our aspiring mind of awakening to practice just not for ourselves, but for all beings. It's like, it's sort of like awakening is a byproduct of our gradually forgetting about ourselves in practice and increasingly focusing on the needs of others. We keep, we'll keep coming back to this theme throughout this talk. So now the refuge prayer. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, I take refuge by the power of generosity in all six perfections. I will attain Buddhahood for all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, I take refuge by the power of generosity and all six perfections, 
I will attain Buddhahood for all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha take refuge. By the power of generosity and all six perfections, I will attain Buddhahood for all beings. <clears throat> My outline for today's talk is very simple and brief. Today, I'm talking about identities that we assume and the problems and the dilemmas we face once we assume an identity. We will then discuss how we can transcend those problems and dilemmas. And then much of the rest of the talk will be about the spiritual path going forward, assuming a new and a transcendent identity. An identity is simply who we think we are. So let's say I ask a New Yorker, who are you? And they'll reply something like, um, I'm Nancy, I'm a New Yorker. They might go on to say, I'm an American. Uh, and so far, so good. But this notion of America involves feeling America as my homeland, my country. So the sense of me and mine, my identity is now bound up north, south, east, and west by Canada and Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, which I'm told is a very vast <laughs> piece of real estate. And our egos get bound up in that piece of real estate. And we don't just stop there. Patriots love their country. And of course, other people love their countries. And they feel in a similar way. So then we start to develop the sense that there are friends and enemies to our country's interests. And so we take up enemies and friends. And so I don't have to go much further in this story uh, you know what happens then. Our attachment to our friends and hatred towards our enemies develop. <laughs> Wars are often the result of all of this. And it's all because of our identification. On a less global level, this same process can develop within a country. We may see our identities tied up into a political party, a class, a race, or a religion. Anyone outside this circle is a potential competitor, an inferior, or even worse, an enemy. And that this enemy must be either destroyed or converted. Civil strife and even genocide have been the results of these kinds of conflicts and identifications. Don't worry. This talk is not about the current political landscape. I'm simply pointing out to you that any, any tightly held personal identity that implicitly or explicitly prescribe others as my friends and others as my enemies causes harm. 
causes suffering, causes conflict. And that's not good. So the point is, it would be very, very good for us to stand back for just a minute and ask ourselves, what's going on here? What are we doing here? Why is this happening? Could we do something better? From a Buddhist perspective, all this suffering, all this suffering and conflict is a result of our ignorance. It begins in falsely identifying the appearing self as something solid, real, something to cling to. Then we attach this self to something perceived even more solid, more real. To put it another way, all of our suffering is a result of intense self-regard. To put it even another way, we fail to recognize that we are the result of causes and conditions and are therefore interdependent, interdependent upon others and our environment. Buddhists speak of this interdependence as an emptiness of self. The self is not something solid, real, it's not an independent thing. Now, immediately, as I say these words, many become puzzled. <clears throat> and this is understandable. To begin to understand, to say nothing of realizing the emptiness of self, takes a lot of analysis and mature meditation. The reason it takes effort is that we have always thought of ourselves as very real and very solid. And frankly, no matter what we might say, we will have this strong tendency to identify ourselves with the self. So we fall back on this tendency, this identity of self. It sounds a little scary after all to say that we lack an identity. Again, though, this is just our comfortable habit. So what do we do in the interim till we actually recognize that? How do we spend our time until we come to full realization? The, by the way, the dilemmas uh, of identities that we face are not unique to our times. I, as an identity, has always been a source of conflict back to the time of the caveman and even before. But perhaps the lethality of our technology may, may make the resolution more urgent for us than it was for the cavemen. But the dilemma is the same, it's not new. So where do we start? The centuries old answer to this dilemma 
comes from Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism uses this very tendency towards identification that we have to lead us actually away from this conflictual dilemma and to enlightenment. So, in Mahayana Buddhism, we assume a new identity. So, let's think here for a minute. If we were creating this new identity, what would be the criteria for it in order that we avoid conflict and bring greater happiness to ourselves and to others? First, the new identity has to be transcendent of all other identities. We might continue to hear and hear to those other identities, but in light of this new identity, all others take a back seat and we treat whatever identity we might have at the time as sort of like um, costume, maybe sort of like a Halloween costume, if you say. The second thing is, at the same time that it is transcendent, this identity would have to include a very gradual approach that led us to transcendence and to enlightenment. We're just human beings, you know, we have to take our time getting there. Thirdly, the identity would have to provide us with skillful ways to extricate ourselves from our self-regard and self-cherishing. This tendency to small-minded identification and towards a greater selflessness. Finally and fourthly, <clears throat> This identity, this new identity that we would assume would have to be an identity that, ex that excludes not one other human or sentient being. Every being would be a joiner, you might say. <clears throat> Mahayana Buddhists call this new identity a bodhisattva. Now don't get confused by the, the words. Bodhisattva simply means a person who is awakening. Awakening from the ignorance of self-clinging. A person who possesses what is called bodhicitta. Chitta meaning mind or heart and bodhi meaning awakening. So bodhicitta means a mind and heart of awakening. A bodhisattva, a person who's awakening, has a mind and a heart for awakening. More specifically, a bodhisattva is a person who vows to wake up for the benefit of all other beings. This is precisely the prayer we began with today the prayer of refuge and bodhicitta. Awakening from our sleep and ignorance is motivated by a desire to liberate all beings without exception. Without this altruistic motivation, our attempts at awakening would be purely solipsistic, a high adventure 
nonetheless, but still solipsistic. Obviously, <clears throat> this is a very vast goal. So we start out with an aspiration. Sometimes we're a little dismissive of uh, an aspiration. We say, oh, it's just an aspiration. Just like I'd like to have a million dollars, okay? No. It's not just like any other aspiration. It's not just use, uh, 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 wishful thinking. And for two reasons. First of all, because we know our situation of suffering has been caused by our ignorance. And so we truly wish to awaken. And secondly, on the basis of cause and effect, our aspiration is attainable with effort and devotion. So in this case, we can view our aspiration as a critical bridge from where we currently are to where we're going. When we look at the world around us, we see that this unselfish goal To, uh, to awaken for the benefit of others is very rare. And when we see it in another person, we are struck by its beauty. This is especially true when we become in contrast to our own state. Ordinarily, we go around tightly contained in our neurotic concerns and thoughts that rattle through our brains All our internal energies are directed squarely on me, mine, and I. In this regard, we are a bit of an uptight narcissist. More aptly, perhaps, these days we are like walking pressure cookers. Our energies internally contained under tremendous pressure. At least that's how it feels like sometimes. So it's important that we start looking at the misery of selfish personal regard and the suffering it causes. You could say the entirety of the bodhisattva path, the path that seeks awakening for the benefit of all, is one of letting go of self-fixations. To go back to the pressure cooker analogy, our job as bodhisattvas is to slowly release the lock on the pressure cooker to allow the pent-up neurotic energy to escape and thereby transform into the warmth and healing that all suffering beings need. It's like that. So, returning to this bodhisattva aspiration, how do we apply this aspiration to practice? What effective methods do we have to bring about awakening? First of all, whatever methods we employ, our process has to be gradual. Why? 
going back to the pressure cooker analogy, if we simply let the lid fly off and go where it may, we're going to get hurt and other people are going to get hurt. Without training our minds, simply letting our energy to explosively discharge would be a disaster. As Minjur Rinpoche has said, our energy would condense on our friends and burn our perceived enemies. So what is the first step in this process? In seeking enlightenment for the benefit of beings? Well, we first stabilize our, our aspiration by committing to, by vowing to awaken for the benefit of all beings. In this way, a vow is our fallback position when things get tough. We're sort of saying to ourselves, I'm going to do this despite all the obstacles because I vowed to do it. Sometimes vows are broken. Sometimes they're broken many times. But because we know the importance of the vow, we go back to it and we repair it and we recommit to it. A vow stabilizes and makes more predictable our future behavior and protects us from a weak and wavering heart. One of the most memorable moments I ever had with Kempo Carter Rinpoche was when I retook the Bodhisattva vow a few years ago. <clears throat> As Rinpoche was explaining the vow, he stopped suddenly and he began to weep. He actually took a long time to regain his composure. He never, he never explained his behavior. And the many people in the room were astonished. I think he truly realized the beauty, the vastness, the heroic courage, and the rarity in taking the Bodhisattva vow. He understood that the vow has the potential for meaningful change in people's lives. And so he knew that day he was instrumental in changing the identities of many people. And I think he was overwhelmed by that fact. So when we recommit, or in the, the case may be commit, to living the life and the identity of an aspiring bodhicitta, bodhisattva, excuse me, how do we apply that vow to everyday life? First of all, most importantly, we start, we stop harming others. The most important thing is we stop harming others. When we have been so self-contained, we have mindlessly and sometimes consciously harmed others. So no more causing pain by jealousy, resentment, gossip, 
and the alike. Based on our vow, this refraining from harm is applied in an unbiased manner. So we are as appalled at swatting a fly and killing it as we are at hurting a human. Now, of course, <laughs> this attitude develops slowly. But at least we know the implication of the vow. And that implication is to be unbiased in our non-harming. Whether it's our friend that we perceive or our enemy. Because after all, we vowed that we would bring all beings to liberation without exception. And if that seems impossible right now, we at least do not want to harm anybody. There are next steps in our daily application of this vow. <clears throat> we practice what are called the six perfections, which are generosity, discipline, patience, diligence, meditation, and wisdom. Undoubtedly, there have been thousands of books written about these qualities. So I'll just give you a few practical ways to apply them in your daily life. Let's take generosity. One of the greatest gifts you give to others is the gift of your undistracted presence. It is particularly true when our presence is combined with quiet love and compassion. I remember in retreat, Rinpoche coming to sit with us at lunch. Many times he never said a word, but occasionally we would have a kind word to say or a little instruction. But the warmth and the generosity of his presence, that I continue, continue to remember to this day. We all know people like that. Maybe we can't be a Rinpoche. Maybe we can't be that wonderful person that we know or have met, but we can emulate them and foster the happiness of others. The second perfection is discipline, which is not some sort of straight back military posture, somberly discharging duty. Discipline is about being in a relaxed state of alertness, a, an awareness of our behavior and its effects. It's about being flexible and supple enough to make just adjustments based on what we are observing about our behavior. And that way we can avoid harming others and we can actually be of help to others. Next is patience. Ah, Patience has to be first applied to ourselves. With any important change 
in our behavior, attitude, anything that's major like that, that we attempt, obstacles are bound to arise. Then at other times, the work is rather boring. We have to be patient. Patience is critical in our pursuit of this spiritual path and new identity. Next comes diligence. And diligence is about something more than not just being lazy. Diligence is about seeing that we are doing, are going another step towards our spiritual goal and being happy about it, even though it's a small step. Diligence is rejoicing in that small step that we take. Minjur Rinpoche has this beautiful definition of, of uh, diligence. He calls it the raincoat we wear to shield us from all that would make us despondent and give up on ourselves. I love that. I'm going to say it again. Diligence is the raincoat we wear to shield us from all that would make us despondent and give up on ourselves. One time in retreat, Lama Karma came into my room and I was, quite frankly, pretty despondent. And I was giving up on myself. And he looked at me and he only had a few words to say and they were rather direct. And he said, Tom, despondency and discouragement is just another form of laziness. <laughs> that was an eye-opener for me. There I was, saying, oh my gosh, I've got so much work to do, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I went on and I had my story. And he was pointing out to me that by recounting that story to myself, I was just creating an excuse for not taking that next small step that I could take. Meditation is the next perfection, and it's very important on our spiritual path and identifying ourselves as a bodhisattva. And there are two types of meditation that we've learned about. First, there is the non-conceptual meditation called calm abiding. And the second is analytical or conceptual insight meditation. In calm abiding, we learn to rest evenly and increasingly, one-pointedly. In insight meditation, we look at this resting mind to determine its, uh, its nature. Ultimately, in insight meditation, we begin to see love and the overwhelming power of compassion in the mind's empty, luminous nature. We discover Buddhahood. Now, <laughs> right now, these are just concepts and beautiful words for us, right? but we can realize their meaning if we're diligent and devoted to our practice and to our teachers. 
but certainly they are down the road and will require the guidance of qualified teachers. While all this work is going on with these perfections, we practice the loosening of the ties to our grasping self. We have to loosen that up a bit. We're holding tight to a self. So in practice, when I give a gift, I don't make a big deal of it. I don't make a big deal of I giving a gift. I'm not a big production here. I'm not trying to create another story about how wonderful I am. Nor is the gift a big deal, no matter how big or small it is. In fact, the smallest gift, given with the proper attitude and motivation, can be of tremendous merit. So we practice with an unselfish expectation of no reward. And when thoughts of a reward arise, as they may, that's not a problem. When those thoughts arise, we discard them and adopt the motivation to benefit beings. It's this selfless attitude that set apart these actions and transcend worldly virtues. Now the last perfection, wisdom. It is simply seeing things as they really are without grasping onto them. This seeing is a result of hearing, studying, and meditating. By these wise actions, we integrate the truth of Dharma into the experience of our daily lives. This integration into experience of our daily lives is really important. I'll tell you a little story. There are people who collect recipes, like my wife and I. We have scores of recipe books with literally hundreds of recipes. There are many recipes in those books, I'm sure, for chocolate chip cookies, something Connie and I love. But I don't think either of us have baked one chocolate chip cookie from one of those recipe books in years. So we have undoubtedly missed out on the promised delight of those recipes. The books are uselessly collecting dust in our pantry. The same can be, true, can be said about our spiritual lives. We can go around collecting and listening to wonderful talks. We can buy thousand-page Dharma books and place them in huge stacks on our bedside. If this sounds like I'm speaking from experience, um, it is. Now, if they would fall on us in our sleep, um, we, might, we might smother. And we also sometimes collect many practice texts which go unused. 
we have these recipes for dharma, but we never bake them. We never taste them. They go unused. If we're after wisdom, if we want to see things as they really are, we have to listen, we have to study, we have to meditate, and we have to practice putting what we have into every aspect of our daily lives. So we need, start, we need to start baking our cookies right now so we can eat some. I've talked about the two aspects of bodhicitta. And bodhicitta, again, is to seek awakening for the benefit of all beings. We've talked about aspiration bodhicitta as a pole star or a bridge to our highest practices of uh, bodhisattva. And secondly, we've talked about application bodhicitta, the steps we take on the way. All this leads to absolute bodhicitta, in other words, awakening, or Buddhahood. All these words have the same meaning in this text, in this talk, actually. John Dimkantrel has some very encouraging words for us. In his book, Torch of Certainty, he writes that absolute bodhicitta, Buddhahood, depends upon our aspiration and application of relative bodhicitta. So it's sort of like this. Jodham Kantra is telling us we have the perfect recipe. If we follow the recipe and bake the cookies, as it were, we will have the full taste and experience of awakening. Kimbukarta Ribache has additional encouraging words. In Dharma Paths, he said that if we begin any beneficial activity with the desire to benefit other beings, if during the course of that activity we recall that motivation, and if at the end of that activity we dedicate it to the benefit of all beings, it's inevitable that this activity will lead directly to one's awakening. These activities are, can be of the smallest of nature. And that's very powerful to think that way. Because nothing, nothing in our lives need be meaningless. All of our activity can be seen as steps on the path. Before we end this talk, I want to give you an even vaster notion of what a bodhisattva is like. Such people do exist, I'm sure. I'm positive of that. So let's take a look at them, because it is good to take a look from the mountaintop to get a glimpse a panoramic glimpse of what's in store for us. Great bodhisattvas, and remember, we are aspiring bodhisattvas. Great bodhisattvas are courageous 
and heroic. They, like us, have made a vow, but they have embraced the full implications of that vow. They, like us, have pledged to attain awakening for the benefit of all beings. But they recognize that beings are limitless in number, and all of them need liberation. They see that the amount of time it takes to liberate these beings is limitless. And finally, they understand the hardships they will endure in that process. You might say that great bodhisattvas are not very realistic. And that would be very true. Rinpoche was not a very realistic person, but he was a realized being. He wanted a new and beautiful Dharma center in the heart of Columbus, Ohio. He wanted it during his lifetime. Unfortunately, in that respect, he was not realistic. But he never accepted reality as being solid, real, or reified. And that's how he accomplished all, all of his teacher's wishes. And that's how we will accomplish the building of the center. Despite all the obstacles and because of Rinpoche's blessing, the Columbus Center will be built. Great bodhisattvas accomplish so much simply because they are not realistic. There is no identity more meaningful than a bodhisattva aspirant or a bodhisattva in training. There is no greater spiritual project we can conceive of than waking up from our ignorance and benefiting others. Because of its awesomeness, I and many of you listening to me have broken this vow frequently, if not daily. But our failures are simply a call to greater practice, not to become discouraged or disheartened. When we break this great vow, we confess it to our teacher if we can, a representation of the Buddha if we have one, or simply imagine the Buddhas in our minds and confess to them. We resolve to do our best and seek proper remedy to the faults that we've shown. And we practice the six perfections. And finally, we resolve to seek the ultimate remedy 
the recognition of the limitless heart of our compassionate mind. I began this talk by discovering the suffering we create by self-clinging. If there is not a change of heart and conduct, this misery and this suffering will continue. But for a moment, imagine the world if more turned to the conduct and attitudes we have described today. The, the way of the Bodhisattva is non-sectarian in its invitation. It is vast and open to every Christian, every Jew, every Muslim, every atheist, every non-believer. What a wonderful world it would be if this planet adopted such a selfless way of life. May we be unrealistic and bold enough to hold such a hope. But may we be humble enough to recognize we have limited influence as an individual to change the broader course of events. We can only do our part. We can, we can assume responsibility to change our own hearts and our own minds. And that is the most meaningful project we can ever undertake. I would like to end this talk with an excerpt from the aspirational prayer from the Way of the Bodhisattva. It is one of the Dalai Lama's favorite passages. Now, as long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I too continue to remain, to drive away the sorrows of the world. <clears throat> Finally, let's dedicate the merit of our time together, and thank you for being here. If you have any questions, I'll be glad to answer them after this. I'll stay, I'll stay around and, uh, for any questions you might have for a few minutes. But anyway, let's dedicate the merit of our time together to the benefit of all beings, recollecting that giving away merit directly works on our clinging to a me, mind, and I. By letting go of anything we might have accomplished, we avoid the serious hang-up of pride. So, by this merit, may we attain awakening. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From this ocean of samsara, 
may we free all beings. Thank you all, and thank you for coming by. Have a great week, and I hope to see you again sometime soon. Love you all. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.